Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Joshua First, whose novel is The Revolutionaries. This is the second novel. Earlier novel is The Sabotage Cafe. There's a collection of short stories called Short People, a children's book called The Little Red Stroller, an entire history before writing short stories and novels, or at least getting them published, in theater in New York, which I would like to talk about if we have time. Sure. But first, let's talk about this book, Revolutionaries. It's a novel that is thinly based on the life of Abby Hoffman, the yippy hippie political activist slash clown, whatever you want to call him, from the 1960s, from the perspective of his son. In reading about the creation of this book, you said that you once stole Abby Hoffman's book, Steal This Book, and that got you started on Hoffman. Is that right? Yeah, I was uh, living in Wisconsin at the time, and I was like 16, and uh, there was a community college in the town I lived in, Fond du Lac hung out there sometimes and did homework and whatever. And rummaging around the stacks, I saw steal this book. So I just said, oh, I guess that's a directive. I guess I should steal it. And it was my first contact with Abby Hoffman and Abby Hoffman's work and sort of the ideas that he was interested in. This was probably 1986. And Hoffman died what year? I believe in 1989. Basically, had you heard of him at that point? I had never heard of him at that point. You that was my first introduction to his existence at all. You knew nothing about the Chicago 7 at that point? No, I was, I was pretty protected. <laughs> it was a small and very conservative town. That got you started thinking about him. And at that point, did you do more research on him and on the Yippies and on that entire era? Very soon after that, I found the transcript of the Chicago 7 trial which had been published in book form, and I, I gobbled that up. You know, I'd been involved. I'd, I'd like, uh, knocked on doors for the, the Rainbow Coalition. And as I got into my senior year in high school, we moved to New York, and I started working for the United Farm Workers and became more and more involved in sort of leftist activism, I guess. At that point, did you become aware of Phil Oakes and his music? That was right around the same time I became aware of Phil Oakes and his music. Okay, so you come to New York... And eventually you get involved in theater, and then you began writing fiction. You wrote your first novel, Sabotage Cafe. What prompted you to look back at Abby Hoffman and begin to work on this particular novel? Basically since that moment, since my late teenage years, early 20s, when I was doing activism, I'd always wanted to find some way to tell the story of the American counterculture in a way that was a contribution that maybe I could make that was different from, you know, the, the straight histories. And as, a, as an artist, as a fiction writer, or as a, you know, manipulator of fictional narratives, I, I had to find an angle that would, that would work for me. So I always had this idea in my head. I don't think that I had the chops yet until I 
had the chops. And <laughs> once I did, then it was time. Uh, had you considered during your days of playwriting, had you considered a play about Hoffman? I used to joke with people that we should do a musical called Yippee! But it never went anywhere. <laughs> no, no, no. They didn't see commercial viability in that. The book Revolutionaries actually... The character is Lenny Snyder, yeah. the Abby Hoffman character, and Anita Hoffman is Susie, his mm -hmm. wife. And it's written from the point of view of their son, which brings up a lot of things, one of which is The Book of Daniel by mm -hmm. E.L. Doctorow. Had you read that? I had read that, and it was a, a hugely important book in terms of my formulating how to approach this book. I was never really comfortable with the idea of historical fiction, but I did like fiction that grapples with and engages with history. Book of Daniel, to me, is the, the best representative of a book that is talking to and of its time with a historical knowledge. Um, so it's telling this historical story in relation to the time that it was, was written. So in some sense, as we're reading revolutionaries, we should understand it was written during the time of Trump. I mean, yeah, well, and Obama. <laughs> I started Obama. during Obama, yeah. I understand that you didn't want to get too caught up mm -hmm. in Abby Hoffman's life because mm -hmm. then it would stunt you f yeah. fictionally, is that right? Yeah, well, I needed to carve out a space in which I could tell my story about my characters, and my characters had a particular psychology that is not necessarily Abby Hoffman's psychology. And I didn't want to write a hag hagiography of Ad Abby Hoffman, and I didn't, I didn't want to be tied to Abby Hoffman as a historical figure. I wanted to write my own fictional character. But the political stunts and the sort of the narrative of, of like the, the chaos that Abby was able to create was stuff that I wanted to be able to get in, sort of pasted onto my or my fictional character. There are a lot yeah. of real people in revolutionaries. Yeah. Uh, William Kunstler, mm -hmm. Allen Ginsberg, Phil Oaks is mm -hmm. a major character. Yeah. Bob Fass of WBAI. Mm -hmm. Have you met him? I feel like I met him once a long, long time ago when I was working for the farm workers, but I... It's a it's a very hazy memory. I got a Facebook friend request from him uh -huh. last week. Oh yeah, I, yeah, I didn't do anything yeah. with it. <laughs> but uh, it's very very strange to read and feel the yeah. cross currents yeah. uh, of those of us who have lived in New York and California. Mm -hmm. What prompted you to enlarge specifically the character of Phil Oaks and make him a major character? There are a few answers to that. On a character level. Freedom Snyder, the, the son, he needed a counterweight to the, I guess, the rapacious narcissism of, of Lenny. And I knew that Phil was part of that scene. And Phil always struck me as the truest believer in that scene. So to have someone who, who approached things not with a sneer, but, you know, with a sob, seemed to me to be a, a, a valuable parallel that I could create. And, and I, I wanted to also find a way for my fictional reality to fully intertwine with the historical reality of, of the times. If my fictional family existed in the real, I wanted the real to enter my fictional family as well. And so Phil was able to serve that purpose. It's a hard road for you because yeah. when you've got characters interacting, it can become a real problem. Uh -huh. So Jerry Rubin, for instance, does not play a role. Right. Though he might be the character Psy? There's some resemblances. <laughs> and the character of Walker, who, who, uh -huh. would, he, who would he Walker be? is an entirely in invented character. Okay. Walker is an entirely invented character, yeah. In the book, when um, Lenny is on the run, he's on the run with 
another character, a very mm-hmm. rich woman who's called the Queen. Mm-hmm. Was Hoffman involved with some rich person who helped him along the way? The woman who became Hoffman's wife later was on the run with him a lot. But again, my character wasn't completely based on on that. I got, I got sort of got vague outlines and I fit, got certain little details that I held on to. And then I just and then I tried to keep protect myself from the factual reality as much as possible so that so that I wouldn't is exactly for what you were just saying. So that I wouldn't feel indebted to the history. So that I could I could enliven a fictional world of my own making without without getting caught up, caught up in those weeds, I guess. It, it's very difficult yeah. to do. The the other problem, of course, is that you are too young to have lived through the yeah. era, which meant you had to do a lot of research and a lot of interviews about people who lived. I didn't interview anybody, but really? I, I read a lot of the fiction of that time and a lot of the like the new journalists of that time, the, the voice-driven ones. What was really important to me, I felt like the way to access the spirit of that time was to find a way to access the language of that time. So then instead of the vernacular of now or the, the type of sentences that are the sentences that are common in fiction now, I wanted the more anarchic fictional sentences that, that a lot of the work from that time consisted of. Did you read old village voices? I that? read a lot of old village voices. <laughs> yeah. And the East Bay other. Yeah. yeah. A lot of Mailer. His historical stuff about, about that era. The yeah, Armies, of, Armies, of, the Armies of the Night and Miami, Miami and the Siege of Chicago. Some people have said that there's some Philip Roth in here too. Mm-hmm. Is there? Well, the real connection to Philip Roth is in the nature of the telling. This is a spoken text as opposed to a written text. Freedom is talking to an imagined interviewer. So it's taking place in real time as he talks to this person. There's a connection to Portnoy's complaint in that, and that's the gambit in that book as well. Uh, this, actually, I wasn't quite clear about yeah. that element until at some point about three-quarters of the way through the book, mm-hmm. he says the word you. So it's there. Yeah. It's there. And, of course, in the first sentence, mm-hmm. but the first sentence is also Moby Dick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Say the first sentence. Call me Fred. I hate freedom. <laughs> uh, and we later turn out that freedom is the name that he's yeah. been given like Hoffman gave the name America to yeah. his kid. What happened to Hoffman's kid? You know, I, I, I especially protected myself from learning anything about him. I, ne- I needed Fred to, to exist within my consciousness and my engagement with my mixed feelings and my strong feelings about these characters. And I didn't, I very much did not want to be, come anywhere near trying to channel a real person's pain. I wanted the pain to come from, from the fictional space that I could bring it from. Joshua First, I once interviewed a writer, Caleb Carr, mm-hmm. who had a similar background <laughs> yeah. with his father being Lucian yeah. Carr. Were you aware of that connection too? I, I, I know who Caleb Carr and Lucian Carr are. It wasn't in my consciousness as I wrote this. I wasn't thinking about Caleb Carr's issues with his dad. <laughs> well, yeah. well, part of that is is things like Allen Ginsberg putting yeah. him to bed, which yeah. has a certain similarity here yeah. in the the child observing the older people. You make a very good case of the nature of memory Uh and how that interacts with the reality. Do you think Fred is a reliable narrator? I think he's a slick talker and he's got a pocket full of stories that he knows how to tell that he's memorized and he's rehearsed. And I think as the book, if it works correctly, as the book goes on, and he becomes more and more comfortable and more and less and less self-defended with this interviewer. He becomes more reliable. 
So as he gets deeper into the book, he starts to reveal his own sense of self in ways that he hadn't been at the beginning of the book. How did you manage to, to pull that off? I mean, how do, you, how do you create a situation where the character, the narrator himself changes that way? Was that always conscious? That was the struggle of the writing. The struggle of the writing was finding a way into Fred's experience of the telling. So the, there's a narrative that he's telling, which is the plot of you know uh, uh, Lenny's life and, and, and everything that happens to them afterwards. But the narrative tension in the book was between Fred and his ability to engage with that story. One way to do that is to be a little lost on time. Like I was mm-hmm. trying to put chronology here and it seemed there were times when he couldn't have been in a certain place because of the age. Right. And it seemed to me, given the specificity of other elements, this was deliberate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, because he's making it up half the time. He's either making it up or he's telling uh, family lore that has been so beaten into him that it's as though he was there. But then I kept thinking about my own memory, mm-hmm. and my own memory says at times, not that I couldn't have been somewhere, but that the events that actually happened one, two, three, four, five in my mind mm-hmm. didn't necessarily happen that way. Yeah. So when you were writing this, you knew automatically that you were doing this. In the rewriting, I knew that I needed to make it work that way. In the writing, I had to let Fred blow. Then I have to deal with the material that he gave me later. Well, it sounds then that the first thing that happened that got you started was you found his voice. Yeah, the, that first sentence, call me Fred, I hate freedom. I had that for six years before I had anything else. And when did the second sentence come then? The second sentence came in 2013. Did you do research prior or as you were working on that first draft? I had a body of knowledge because of my history and because of my longstanding interest in this. Then I began to do a lot of reading, like I said, of of artifacts of the time to get the, the spirit and the feel of the time. The way that research works best for me anyway is if I know what the specific detail that I don't know is, I can then go find that detail. And that way I'm, I'm not getting lost in like the abundance of new information outside of my story that could take, take me away from my story and I could get lost for years there. I'm finding a specific thing that I need to make the story feel real in that way in that moment. Were there any moments where you were just trapped and you needed to find something and serendipity just gave it to you? Yeah, there was something you know, the East Coast, West Coast turf war in the 60s. I was very trapped in the East Coast, and I, and I knew that I needed some of the spirit of the, the cultural side of that, move, that movement. I just stumbled on Ringolevio by uh, Emmett Grogan, which cracked open everything else I needed for that other type of anarchy to enter the book. You're a political guy, and yet it's pretty clear that there's very little actual politics in the book. Mm -hmm. It seemed to me that this was a deliberate choice on Mm -hmm. your part. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I have some strong feelings about the the difference between a political intention and an artistic intention. I've seen very, very few works of literature or art art of any form that uh, isn't hindered by its dogmatic purposes if it is actively trying to be political. It seems to me that if the politics are submerged in the spirit of the thing and are are part of that reality and you, you stay true to the psychology of the characters, 
and their context and their circumstances, then uh, the paradoxes and the contradictions in the in the human animal that are what enlivens real great fiction, I think, come to the fore, and and then there starts to be a kind of a counterpoint between the politics and the and the art. In this particular case, of course, and and in the case of the real life Hoffman and Rubin mm-hmm. and all most of those people, mm-hmm. not Kunstler, not Dellinger. Mm-hmm not the actual politicos, they all on some level abandoned the politics because how important was it yeah. actually for them yeah. as opposed to Phil Oaks? Yeah. Well, Abby didn't abandon the politics. Abby came back to the politics in the 80s. Abby was, Abby was very, very active in the 80s, like the dirty wars in, in Central America. He was working hard on that stuff and he was working hard on um, anti-nuke stuff. This isn't necessarily spoiler, but there's a point where the book ends and a lot of things happen afterward, including what happened to Lenny, Mm -hmm. (laughs) what happened to his wife, Mm -hmm. what happened to their marriage, Mm -hmm. though we pretty much know it's over. And that was deliberate because the book could have been twice as long, I would think. Yeah, I had had an idea in my head when I started the book that that I would take us through Fred's present, but that was was gonna be unwieldy and that wasn't gonna be a contained narrative. So this is not the whole story of these characters, but this is a whole arc of a story related primarily to, I guess, the arc of Susie and Lenny's marriage, I would say. Do you think Freedom actually, by the end of the book, knows really who he is? I think by the end of the telling, he knows who he is. But I don't know that he knew who he was when he started telling the book, and I know that the experience he is, that he's describing he doesn't know who he is by the time those experiences end. But the act of telling, I think, allows him to see himself. Particularly during the second part of the book when yeah. Lenny is off screen. Well, he's never quite off screen, yeah. but he's not there. Yeah. And we have a kid growing up with his mother. Yeah. There are a lot of books about radicals on the run. And the radical always seems to be the hero. And it's a it's an odyssey. And I felt like the stories of the people who got left behind were were stories that were of great importance that shed some light that needed to be shed on on the tragedies of those experiences. One thing you do is we never really get into his mother's head, and his mother is outside of Lenny, the yeah. other important person in the book. Mm-hmm. And I kept thinking, well, yeah, because he's a little kid, and his mom is mommy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, there's a porous there's a porous relationship. They don't have very many boundaries. They've got some issues. As you're writing the book, as you're doing your research, did your view of what happened and how the '60s turned to Reagan and later even Trump did did that change at all your view? It's a central question that I was asking that prompted me to want to write the book. How did that turn so far into this other thing? I would include Clinton and everybody else in that too. There was a there was a great turning away from the ideals that, that these these characters represented. It's you know, it's very hard to explain that cogently. I mean smart, many much smarter people than than I have, have attempted and failed to do that, right? On some level it feels to me as though the desire to create a separate space in society overwhelmed the people who were trying to do that. And when, when you lost their voices, you lost that thread, that thread of possibility. And then, as happens every 20 years or so, every 15 years or so, 
the left started to become infatuated with its own success and its own power, everybody turned on everybody else, right? People are starting, I think, mm -hmm. to look back and starting to ask the question. Yeah. A lot of people who might have been part of that movement back mm -hmm. in the 60s and 70s watch Fox News now. Yeah. They're the boomers who, who voted for this yeah. moron in the White House. Well, there's also, I mean, the libertarian thread in the leftist social movements of the 60s when those people grew up and found themselves grappling with more material problems, I guess. It's a short swing of the pendulum from leftist libertarian to rightist libertarian, right? You just have to decide to accept corporate control. And so I think a lot of, the, a lot of that happened. Well, I mean, another thing that happens is as, as people gain money, they gain stuff and they gain space. And without even realizing it, they lose access to some of the aspects of daily reality for those who have less than they now have. It's really easy to forget that that reality is, is continuing to go on, even though you yourself may have escaped it. In the case of Lenny Snyder, yeah. we have somebody who, or Abby Hoffman, we have someone who became very famous. Mm -hmm. And that brings in the entire world of celebrity. Yeah. And when one is a celebrity, one is no longer anonymous. Not only is one no longer anonymous, but one is always on stage. Yeah. And, and being on stage requires a, an interface with, with the, the image of oneself that's, that's going to be projected out there. And then what does the, the, the mush of humanity that's hidden behind that image, how does that stay alive and stay protected and, and stay, you know, keep growing? It's a difficult thing. Which could be a summation of the final plane ride in the, at right. the end of the book. Yeah. Now, you were at Iowa Writers' Workshop, mm -hmm. and you also took classes in theater at the Tisch School. Yeah. How does working on in theater influence the later writing from the Iowa Workshop to revolutionaries? To me, the primary difference between writing for the theater and writing for the page is that the, the primary interaction with the audience member, whether that member is reading or, or, or sitting there, is, is based on a different set of tools. So in the theater, you're working with live flesh and blood people in space and time, and that defines the limits of the, the experience that you're giving the audience. On the page, it's like a mind mouth. You're, the words are coming from your mind onto the page and going into the reader's mind. And so the, the level of psych psychological depth that a novel allows or that a, a, a short story allows is, is very different from what's allowed on the stage. Even if a character is giving a monologue on the stage, that character is still speaking it and performing it as opposed to simply thinking it and experiencing it. Uh, the other issue is that theater's collaborative. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. whatever you want to do, it's going to change. Yeah. Yeah. This is sort of why I don't work in the theater anymore. <laughs> you got tired of other people yeah, saying your words? Yeah, it's very, it very, very hard to work with people who uh, might have different agendas from my own. Uh, did did uh, working in theater help you with working in the dialogue in the book? It, it did. Uh, in, terms of, in terms of mimetic uh, speech, it gave me a leg up. It allowed me to jump past a lot of, a lot of the struggle. To how, do you, how, do you, how do you make dialogue sound real? And creating one voice and having one voice go through. I mean, when you're writing for theater, you have to deal with voices yeah. and they're just voices. Yeah. But they all have to be different. They have to be the characters. Right, right, right. And so that, that's how you hone 
your your skills as 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 a, as a writer of dialogue is that you start to figure out what is the particular turn of phrase that this character relies on when he or she doesn't know what to say next, and that can become a character trait that is a verbal tick that illuminates character, and if and and you can start to differentiate them in that way. You don't have to worry about that with with books or well, when you're you... writing in the third person, you're 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 defining you're you're defining the the syntax of the sentences based on other criterion, right? Right. If you're writing in the first person, you do have to you do have to worry about that, and so having developed that skill writing plays, I was able to start to look at how do I extend that for longer stretches of prose. Were you getting tired up the end of Freedom's voice, or did you still like it? I still liked him. I'm very protective of this character. Let's go on a little bit, too, about your career, Joshua, first. Now, you grew up in the Midwest, came to New York. Where did you get involved? How did you get involved in theater? And was that an offshoot of working in politics? I was a child actor in Wisconsin. Okay. I, when I was eight years old, I acted in a production of Waiting for Godot at Ripon College. I played the little boy. And everything I've ever done in my life since then has been because of that experience. I came to New York, and uh, I had one more year of high school left. So my mother looked into LaGuardia and discovered that if I were to uh, get admitted at LaGuardia, I would have to stay in high school for three more years. So instead, she enrolled me in a magnet school for the arts called Julia Richmond, which was also the third worst school in New York City. My mother went there, but that was like that was I'm 30s. sure long before. Yeah, yeah, it was a very different place. Well, I went to an art school, and at that point, you got involved in theater again. Yeah, well, I mean, I was I was invo- I was never not involved in theater. I was doing the like I, I basically would go around doing radio interviews and going to public high schools, trying to convince people to join the Great Boat Boycott. Was my involvement with the farm workers, and then I I just mouthed off, you know. <laughs> So you got involved in something called alternative theater, which are groups I've never heard of. In the 90s, there was a, there was a kind of an underground theater movement. I mean, it's, sometimes they called themselves regional alternative theater. Sometimes they called themselves radical anarchist theater. It was a loose national collective of theater artists in those early days when we believed that the Internet was going to do some good on, on Earth. Uh, had a listserv. And we would talk to each other on the listserv, and we'd get together once a year for two weeks and, and, and show each other what we'd been up to. And I, I, I was involved in that, yeah. Were there uh, any people who go back to the era of revolutionaries who were part of those groups? Uh, the Living Theater was uh, – uh, there were some members of the Living Theater who were involved. I have a little sentence in the book where I pay homage to the Living Theater. Did you ever meet Judith Molina? I never – Shook her hand, but I saw a lot of her shows that she 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 got a new space uh, about not not long before she died, and she started remounting some of the classic old shows, and I went to see them. How were they? They were amazing. They cool. were they were so much better than I expected them to be. And and then eventually you wound up at the Tisch School. What did you learn there? I mean, at Tisch I was studying playwriting and uh, screenwriting, and I learned that I did not want to write after school specials, and I did not want to find a way to construct my narrative so that it ended on page 117, which was the page that all screenplays at that time seemed to have to end on. And that uh, if I was going to work in theater, it was going to be in the experimental theater, in the, in the non-lucrative and um, non-ambitious theater, theater that was, that's ambitions were quixotic enough 
to be hard to explain. <laughs> and have five people in the audience. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so at what point did you begin writing fiction then? I was writing fiction as well during that time. I, at Tisch, I got in a lot of trouble because I kept taking academic classes. People kept saying, why are you doing – there's such a thing as too much reading. There's such a thing as too much learning. You're supposed to be here to learn how to do this practical thing, make theater. And I, I took – except that I'm horrible with foreign languages. I could have had a double major in creative – or in uh, comparative literature. Um, so I was – I always had an interest in, in the written words. It's, it comes from Beckett. I mean, I, I was interested in theater because of Beckett, but Beckett was a prose writer too, and right. yeah, and a literary person, not just a theater person. Yeah. So, where did you sell your first story? My first story got uh, plucked out of the slush pile by the Chicago Tribune, and was awarded a uh, Nelson Algren Award in 1996. That was pretty early yeah. on then. Yeah. And and uh, did that get you into Iowa? Well, I don't know what got me into Iowa. That was one of the stories that I used to apply to Iowa. I have no idea how their selection process works. I, I'm just glad that they took me. How was it over there? I mean, I've talked to a lot of people who went, and uh -huh. I've speaking, spoken with a few of the teachers there. Yeah. But for you, Joshua First, coming in, what did they do? What, what classes did you take? What writing did you do? I knew that I had a project. I knew that I had been working on these short stories all about little kids. And I knew that by the end of my time there, I wanted to have the full book done. That's short people. Yeah. And uh, so that actually helped me focus how to approach the two years. The, bi the biggest thing that Iowa does is it gives you time. It gives you two years where you have extremely little responsibility and you have the time to, to explore your art, you know, without worrying about money or career. And uh, that is, that's the primary gift that it gives. And the second thing that I got from it was was an environment where everyone was as serious about what they were doing as I, as as I was, and so instead of something being good enough, it had to actually be good, and so you learned how to hold yourself to the standards that would force you to to grow and and become in control of your work. Did that mean that your stories were passed around to other students? And yeah, we would have workshop and and everybody would go up three or four times, and you'd read their work and you'd take notes on their work and then you'd come in and try to say something intelligent about the work or, or say something. There are a lot of things that happened in those rooms. In talking to various teachers there, the, the sense I got is that one of the most important elements that they kind of teach and work with is voice. On some level, yeah. A lot of students come in young and don't really have a developed and specific voice that they've created yet. And they're really just figuring out how to construct a thing and the, the control of the idea that the word you choose affects the larger consistency of the, of the piece. It's not just getting the event down, but it's creating the experience of the event. And that experience is created by very careful word choice is, I guess, how, how voice develops, right? And, and that comes into play in revolutionaries mm -hmm. where you're dealing very specifically with a single voice. Yeah. Uh, you know, first person, yeah. where, as you said at the beginning of the interview, you have to make sure the language yeah. is not necessarily the language we are speaking now. Yeah, yeah, totally. There's, there's, certain, there's certain words that I, had to, that I had to translate into the previous iterations. Like, uh, they would never say African-American. They would say Afro-American. 
and I had to make sure that I had those kinds of details of sort of the cultural moment right in terms of the word choice. Uh, did you have that same problem even with the short stories and short people? Well, the short stories that, you know, each character's voice has its own has its own nuance. So there's one story in short people um, called Merit Badge that's a first-person story that's a Boy Scout talking about his his experience at uh, at camp that is not it does not go very well, and and he's not he's not an educated kid. He's like the low kid on the totem pole. He's not that smart. He really just wants everybody to accept him, and uh, so he stumbles over his words consistently throughout the whole thing. And so that was an exercise in channeling inarticulateness and making that inarticulateness a form of articulate narration. When you finally had the book together, um, you were still at Iowa or you'd left Iowa and you sent it out? I finished that book a month before I was done at Iowa and uh, I sold it the week after I graduated. And the decision to write the novel Sabotage Cafe, how did that come about? I was always interested in the punk scene. I was, you know, I, like I said, I grew up in a um, very conservative part of Wisconsin. And in the in the 80s, the punk scene was the only avenue to escape that conservatism. But uh, where I was, there wasn't really much space for that. So I would read about it on the coasts. And I knew that there was a punk scene in Minneapolis, and that was as close as I could ever imagine getting. So I wanted to do honor to the punks of the Midwest who I felt like had always been given a raw deal because they were overlooked and they weren't seen as being as, as important as the the coastal punks. Did you ever go there? To yeah. To Minneapolis for it and see it? Yeah, totally, totally. Did a lot of groups come through? There were some really important groups that were based out of there. Husker Du was a Minneapolis band. Uh, the replacements were a Minneapolis band. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a, it was a full full. There was a full scene. scene. Yeah, there was a full scene. It just it just wasn't where the you know it wasn't sexy. It wasn't a sexy scene. <laughs> uh, did you ever make it to CBGBs? Yeah, I've done my time at CBGBs. <laughs> I'm from an earlier generation, uh, Max's Kansas City. I saw the Velvet yeah. Underground there. Yeah, I uh, <laughs> I didn't get to go to Max's before it closed, but uh, and then then we come to revolutionaries. Yeah. Yeah. And you sort of indicate that this was in the back of your mind even during those other days. Yeah, I always, I always wanted to to find a way to access the the history of these subcultures. I mean, if the punk scene is a subculture, if um, a lot of my short stories are dealing with people who are inside of subcultures, what's the relationship between those subcultures and the larger culture? And and that gets us into history, and that intersects with the politics of of America, right? Which brings us to the next question, which is, have you begun working on something now, and is it in the same vein? I'm messing around with some things. Every day I change my mind. It's, it's hard, to, hard to figure out what exactly. I've started writing a variety of things, but they're, uh, they're all just sketches at the moment. And you have no plans to go back to either screenplay or plays? No, not, not a one. You've been listening to an interview with Joshua First, whose novel is titled The Revolutionaries. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>